You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Hi, Henry. Hey, Kate. Fancy seeing you here. This is this may be our last episode. I didn't realise you'd be here. Um, it's the last episode of the season. Yeah, it is. Of Does, Does This, this Count as study? study? Today, we were joined with an ethic professor called Ben Shonthu, and he is a professor of Buddhism and Asian religious studies. Today, we looked at different religions. We looked how they changed in different parts of the world. And we looked at practices and even dove into the background of the political side. We did. We asked him about psychedelics. We asked him about if he's been part of any uncommon rituals. And we touched on cultural appropriation and how we can learn to respectfully engage with other people's cultures. And just genuinely had a great yarn. It was cool. So thank you for listening, especially to our last episode of the season. We'll be back next semester. Yeah, and I hope you enjoy it. Sit back, relax, grab a tea. Have a lozenger. You know, treat yourself. (laughs) All right, kia ora. My name is Kate Pitches. And I'm Henry Hollis. And welcome to our final episode of Does Does This Count count As Study? Um, today we are joined with a very special person. He is a religious studies professor and his name is Ben Shonthu. Kia ora Ben. Kia ora. Yeah, welcome. Welcome. Um, the first question is, we've obviously had a chat before this and you've said quite a few people get confused with religious studies and religious people and what it actually means of a subject and people would kind of want to know what is religious studies. So. Yeah, no, I totally understand that question. Um, I think when a lot of people think about religion, they think, as you say, about, you know, ministers and people, you know, engaging in religion. Um, we, we look at religion as a cultural phenomenon, as a human phenomenon. The study of religion, I can understand why people would be confused. Um, and indeed, when I first started studying it, I wasn't quite sure what was involved. But we look at religion as, as part of human society, as part of human culture. Uh, we look at, we don't ask questions of, you know, what did this text say? And then sort of teach you what the religions say. We ask, you know, why do... Uh, people produce these institutions. Why do they produce these texts? Um, what are the historical circumstances? Uh, how does it affect politics? Uh, you know, evolutionarily, why has religion evolved? What does it do for human societies? Uh, so we're social scientists. Mm. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, that's yeah. an important like thing of difference. Because when I first thought of like religious studies, I was like, oh. Yeah, is it just a bunch of religious people? But no, to look, be to be able to quantify and look at the social science aspect of it. Yeah, it's it's sort of the opposite, actually. It's the, I guess, I mean, we would say in the academic community, we say it's the critical study of religion. So we're um, trying to get to the bottom of why people do what they do. And it's like anthropology or sociology looks at society, anthropology at culture. We look at religion. I think the, the thing that makes it cool, particularly, is that we involve a whole bunch of different disciplines in the study of religion. So we have a psychologist who's on our staff, someone who's a PhD in anthropology. Uh, I work in law and politics, uh, someone who's a historian, someone who's an art historian. And so we look at this really important aspect of human societies mm. from all these different angles. So it's like a super humanities, you know, it's like you get a little bit of everything. Yeah. Ethic. It's kind of yeah, like behind the scenes of religion. Yeah. Religion yeah. after dark. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you get here? Like what steps in your journey led you to where you are now like like yeah in Dunedin well it's a kind of there's kind of a weird story here which is that 
I actually came to Dunedin as a study abroad student about 20 years ago, and I met my wife here. And it was we, a kind of a long journey back here, but um, I didn't set out to become a religious studies professor. I was uh, studied medicine as an undergraduate and did this on the side. And yeah, I just became fascinated by the kinds of questions that would come up in this field. I spent some time in Sri Lanka and became very interested in the history and the politics and the religion there. Um, and traveled for a little bit, and then uh, some doors opened up in the direction of PhD work. Um, and yeah, and when it came time to to sort of ask the question, you know, to head toward medicine or head toward this, I just was so fascinated by this, and the people that work in this area uh, tend to be really interesting and, and fun to hang out with, and I just, yeah, kept going. So you did yeah. your PhD here? or No, I did it in the States, States at the University of Chicago. Yeah. And did you, what was the topic of it? It was looking at the legal regulation of religion in Southeast Asia, but particularly in Sri Lanka. So the, the question I was interested in was, um, I mean, you would have heard there was this, a civil war in Sri Lanka for a long time. And, you know, throughout a lot of the 19th century, the solution to that, one of the solutions to the civil war was to create a kind of a legal arrangement in which religious groups could get on harmoniously and um, while also giving some recognition to the majority religion. And there was a lot of political effort put behind this and legal effort. And I guess my question was, why, why did that fail? And why do we continue in, in places around the world to put so much faith in, in, in law to solve conflicts over religion? And so, yeah, mm -hmm. so I wrote a PhD that analyzed the history of that and basically came to the conclusion that kind of surprisingly, the very laws that we set out to kind of create uh, a harmonious situation for religious groups sometimes undermine uh, the conditions of that harmony. And yeah, so I wrote a PhD on that topic, and uh, it looked very closely also at, at you know, the interface of Buddhism and law, and mm. uh, yeah, that, that came out as a book a few years ago. So It looks like you've kind of continued looking at that intersectionality with the your current research project called Law's Karma. Mm. How, what is that about? Like when, when I first saw that, I thought it was about karma, yeah. Yeah, as in you're talking about... <laughs> like explaining how it works and talking about all the different aspects of it and stuff. But what is your book yeah, currently no, about? Thanks for asking me. I mean, it's uh, sort of kind of is about karma. I mean, karma is this idea that, um, you know, actions have, have consequences and that our sort of situation in the present is predicated on things that happened in the past. And this book is looking at, at law from that perspective. Uh, and it's particularly looking at the laws that govern Buddhist monks uh, in South and Southeast Asia, and trying to apply uh, some kind of the some of the I guess findings and conclusions from the study of state law to uh, non-state law, and to look at the ways in which mo the monastic legal system kind of operates and the way it, in it intersects with state law, and uh, you know the history that kind of gave rise to that and the effects of that. And yeah, it's interesting because actually. I told you yesterday, one fifth of um, you know the world's population live in some place where Buddhist legal traditions were really influential, mm. uh, and in a lot of those places it, they continue to be today. And it's not something you probably never heard of. It most people have never heard of kind of Buddhist law or Buddhist legal traditions, um, but they're really important, really interesting. And uh, yeah, so this book looks at them, and and the, and the I guess the the title is a kind of uh, enticement for people to think about. Um, Buddhist concepts alongside legal concepts, and that's kind of okay. what the book's trying to do. Because yeah. I've heard that um, monks and religious people in other countries generally have a lot of power mm. in that country, and 
in politics as well. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely the case. Um, I think, you know, throughout the world, yeah. Yeah, I never would have thought that though, because I always just kind of imagined monks and Buddhism to be like isolated from society almost, like people just have just chosen to go nut and like live up in monasteries or places away. So it actually is really interesting to hear that how integrated it is with society and how much it influences it, even if you're unaware of it. Yeah. So to study that would be cool. Yeah, that's definitely one of the kinds of things that made me particularly interested in this field. Yeah. Power of religion. Yeah. Um, How does it differ though, like compared in that area of the world, how does it differ to here, and especially actually how does it differ in that area as well, the religion? Yeah, so it's complex. I mean, the the topic of looking at the intersection of religion and politics anywhere is a, is a complicated question. And, you know, one of the strengths of our program is that we have a lot of expertise in Asia and particularly South and Southeast Asia. And I think there, some of the things that are interesting are, um, you know, central to Buddhism is this community of full-time renunciants that we call Buddhist monks. And, you know, they're in charge of preserving the tradition, teaching the tradition. Um, they have a lot of important roles in communities. And so, you know, unlike, uh, I guess, some of the religious systems that we might be most familiar with here, Christianity, for example, um, there's large communities of these renunciants who live together in monasteries and have their own traditions and their, uh, you know, the society supports them and uh, they're this kind of yeah, full-time expert role. And that's, that's quite different, you know, when you start to drill down on the way religion and politics looks in, in a in a place where there's uh, large communities of Buddhist monks, it tends to take different forms. Hmm. All right. So for this episode, we collated a bunch of questions from friends and family and things. So our first question is from Pippa, and she's asking if there are any uncommon rituals or experiences that you've been a part of like when you're in Sri Lanka, the US, compared to here, um, and we can potentially interlink this with a comment that we got on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? The, um, the, well, it was more of a statement that um, psychedelics and their role in religion. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess maybe taking the second comment first. Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting topic of research. And actually, we have a PhD student working on that very topic. Um okay. Lots of religions do use, you know, mind-altering substances for rituals and things. You could think of, you know, peyote use. And uh, certainly there's evidence from early Indic religions of a, of a certain substance called soma that was used in Vedic rituals. These are the early uh, Indian rituals. Uh, yeah, and that continues to be influential in some religions. Uh, as In terms of unusual religious experiences... Uh, I'm not sure if those two questions are linked or not, uh, but uh, I mean, I, there's you know part of what you do in the academic study of religion is participate and observe lots of different rituals, and uh, I think one of the more interesting rituals that I've sort of been exposed to in Sri Lanka are certain there's certain types of traditional exorcisms that happen, um, particularly in the southern part of Sri Lanka, uh, which are long all-night events. It's kind of a complicated thing to explain, uh, but involve kind of Buddhist ideas as well. And I think one interesting thing about that is, and it's something that's probably not so unfamiliar to people in New Zealand, is 
there have been people who have studied the kind of psychological benefits of those types of rituals that it is a kind of, you could look at it as a kind of therapy in which the community is, there's a rupture in the community, the community is, you know, reharmonized through this process of this long ritual event. And, and indeed, uh, one of my colleagues, John Shaver, who teaches in our program, you know, a lot of his work is looking at the, um, you know, pro-social effects of religion over time. So uh, one, one of the cool rituals that he's done some actually really close study of is really high intensity kind of um, high pain rituals Ooh. in Mauritius. So there they have this uh, a certain ritual where they impale themselves with hooks and pull things and it can be, look quite gruesome. Uh, and so he and some other people have done a study that looked at people's expression of trust and cooperation and other pro-social qualities before the ritual and after the ritual. And they found that people who participated in the ritual you know, these pro-social qualities were obviously much more pronounced at the end of the ritual. But not only that, the people who watched this ritual also f expressed similar kind of um, bumps in pro-sociality. And I think they even did biometrics kind of measures where people's heart rates were coordinated through this process as well. So there's oh. like really interesting things. So it brought people together almost. Yeah, but yeah, well, I think that's the conclusion of a lot of studies of, of religion. I mean, you know, because this question of these rituals is like, why would you do them? Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like <laughs> barbaric. But then yeah. kind of with them, if they're brought up in that religion and that environment, like, is it unusual to them? Yeah. And, or is, and, is it normal? Well, yeah, certainly there's different norms for, you know, rituals in lots of different places. And there's certain things, I, you know, we have our own, uh, I guess, punitive, not punitive, but harmful rituals like 21st birthday parties that, <laughs> that might serve a different purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, no, I mean, the, I think it's, it's very clear from, from the data that uh, rituals do serve a really important social function, which is why, um, you know, in, in the COVID age, it's, I think one of the things that we've really been missing is these communal rituals. Um, as a, as a, just to go on a little bit of a tangent here, I mean, as a kind of evolutionary question, which is yeah. what... Well, um, yeah, yeah, actually. So I told my mum I was doing this and she yeah. got really excited. She's like, oh my God, you should ask. She sent me a podcast and she's like, I've listened to this. You should ask about this. So she was kind of asking, why is there such a need for religion and how yeah. did, did it evolve so independent in all these different societies but it's just so fundamental like every single i don't know aspect of society you look mm -hmm. at the religion started from somewhere yeah yeah no it's a really good question and and you know you could even add to that question like religion is costly right i mean if we look at this from an evolu evolutionary perspective and here i'm really relying on the work of um joseph watson john shaver who are who, who are part of our program we have a whole side of our program which is the science of religion and we've just started a new minor and we have a new 100 level Ooh. class so all you guys listening check Do it out plug, check it yeah. out <laughs> rails 110 um but you know they would say it, it's a really important question because also from an evolutionary perspective it's energetically costly it doesn't seem to have immediate kind of benefits you know um so why do we have it i think the current state of scholarship would say that because it helps us with cooperative problems that we're a species that needs uh, different ways to coordinate large groups of people and, and and there's lots of theories why religion does this there's a, a theory for example that you know big punitive gods help you know you're, you're afraid that these big punitive gods are going to harm you and so you act in a way that's you know productive for your community as opposed to just a kind of individualistic act 
Um, there's arguments that say that these rituals kind of induce um, prosociality in, in through various types of mechanisms. I mean, even there's been very simple studies done um, by our, our colleague Joseph Babulia and other people at, at Vic that have looked at they've measured prosociality in different ways before and after very basic and in, basically invented rituals where people like perform very mechanical dance moves and things or, or almost like you're at a tennis game right and that they can measure an enhancement of um, trust and um, how do they measure that like how do you measure prosociality is it a yeah there's these or? different games that you economic oh, okay. games is one of the ways uh, there's obviously questionnaires and things and this this has to do with the psychological measures that really Joseph and, and John are more familiar with. But but I think it gets to the point that, you know, the academic study of religion in, incorporates this as well. And mm. we have, you know, experimental methods and, um, you know, data methods. And I think that is probably also surprising to some yeah. some listeners. Yeah. That ways to quantify the outcomes yeah. that you experience it and be able to, like, yeah. point to yeah. evidence for it. That's awesome, yeah. The thing I wanted to know was, like, because you obviously you said before you're not religious, but no. you have, you enjoy not enjoy, but you are interested in religion. Have yeah. you taken any important like ideas or theories away from either one or two religions or m- multiple and yeah. brought them into your everyday life? That's no, that's a good question. I mean, I, I I think like if I might just step back as to this question, like why study religion? Yeah. Um, I think there's a couple of answers. I think, you know, there's this one kind of obvious answer, which is to say, you know, this is something that's actually absolutely central to people's lives over long periods of time and in all different cultures. And so to really get a sense of the full diversity and, um, you know, what's really important to people in the world, it helps to take a class in religious traditions that you're not familiar with. I mean, I think it's very broadening to your mind. Um, but also, like, there's solutions in these traditions that have been developed over centuries, and so you can't help but but look for those things, even if you're studying them not as a as a you know a, someone who's an adherent. Um, and certainly, the the big one I was thinking about this question. Uh, yeah. You know, the big one I think I've taken from from Buddhism has to be this one about like um, the middle way. There's this idea of the the path that the Buddha taught being this kind of middle path between extremes. And so, whenever I find myself in a a zero-sum mindset of thinking, oh, I've got to do all this or all this, I, I try to take a step back and just think, okay, well, maybe there's a kind of a moderating, you know, a meridian here that I can follow, you know, whatever it is. Like, I either got to, you know, if I, if I can't study 20 hours for the exam, I'm not going to study at all. Well, no, maybe you have five hours, you know. So that, that kind of thing has been helpful. And also, and we talked yesterday about, I do think certain kind of contemplative, like meditative techniques have been helpful to me personally. And I know that's mindfulness kind of practices are popular everywhere but um, in in our 102 class we have a class called um, introduction to Hinduism and Buddhism uh, we talk about meditation and we we have a, a, a PhD student of ours who's a Buddhist monk who takes the students through a, a guided meditation and yeah it's interesting to, to hear people's reactions some people it's their first time and they I think there is um, yeah there's 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 quite uh, serious responses that the students have to that kind of thing and yeah, I think that's been useful for me. What's the because Buddhism's meditations quite rather than just like emptying your mind, it's more about thoughts and it's yeah. quite um, directed. What are like kind of the main um, ideas they they usually think about when they meditate? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds. I think it's a misconception that that I certainly had before I started started studying Buddhism that there's like one type, but there's all mm-hmm. different types of meditation and and you know very ancient meditation manuals and. Um, if you look at those, they they describe all different 
kinds of objects that you can focus on and even like mantras that you can chant to yourself. Those are like repeated verses. Um, the, I think the, the, you know, if there is a kind of a, a, a sort of an imagery or a, or a consistency among those techniques, it's this idea that, you know, your mind, mind is like this um, ocean with a lot of ripples on it or it's like, you know, it's, it's the, the, often the language is about it's like a, some kind of clear surface that's been sullied with different kinds of impurities and that the process of, of meditation sort of helps remove those impurities. It helps calm that kind of turbulence mm. in, in your thoughts and that through that you can reflect accurately the world as it is like that most of the time we're not actually reflecting the world as it is we're distorting it through any number of um it could be emotions or projections or yeah would it be stuff like that absolutely so what i'm hearing is like some of your main takeaways from your time throughout studying religion and stuff is that it helps to a median ground maintain a median ground as that Mm, we said yeah and just a bit more mindfulness like being aware of how maybe you come up to a situation and present, but realizing that it's kind of to do with how you're feeling at the time and trying to step back from that. Yeah, yeah. Would well, that I, be I think, right? <laughs> or to use some of those techniques, um, yeah, to try and, to try and I mean, uh, get some perspective on your own thought processes and just to be able to, I guess, reflect on your own patterns of thought maybe. Um, I guess there's one, the last thing I'd say is, I mean, I'm the kind of person who I didn't want to show up for my graduation. Like, I just thought, why? What's the point? And I, it really has reinforced to me the value of these um, acts of communality. Like, I do feel that um, that stuff, even though it may not seem like it's really important in your life, is, you know, has these other benefits that we don't really know about. And uh, I don't know, I think about these studies now that you see about, you know, that like one of the hot, like, I don't know, I read this somewhere because I'm approaching middle age as a man, like, <laughs> you know, the, the, the best measure of, or the, the thing that correlates most closely with like health for middle-aged men is friendships and like social engagements. And I think that's a kind of a lesson that is in, it's in religion. I mean, with some exceptions, you know, most religious rituals are social rituals and that those have a, you know, a utility. Yeah. Because sometimes it doesn't really matter what you're doing. It's just if you're with other people and you're getting the stimulation of having someone who cares about you, you're obviously going to feel better Yeah. if you don't have anyone to care. And also directed at, uh, yeah. we, uh, directed at some kind of shared goal, I think. is mm. Yeah, but no, totally. Yeah, the same beliefs. And yeah, I really like that point you actually said about um, the first one where you, if you have failed at studying, like, 20 hours and it's you've only got 10 more hours left rather than freaking out yeah and losing the plot and being, oh my god i'm gonna fail you just study for the next five hours and do the best you can do absolutely yeah 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 that all or nothing thinking is like it like it, i don't know it definitely plagues me i don't know it seems like it plagues a lot of people yeah um so yeah that's one thing i but like, I, like right. saying all this i'm not some kind of zen person i'm a I'm a pretty like flawed you know <laughs> human being so i yeah i try but i failed most of the time yeah yeah, I think everyone does. I'm just accepting that. Yeah. Um, I got a question from my really good friend Sian at Social Impact Studio, and it's all right if you don't like have all the answers or anything. But I thought I would ask it anyway. So she was quite curious about the concept of cultural appropriation. So I googled it, and it says the definition is an adoption of elements of one culture or identity by members of another culture or identity. 
and it says this is particularly harmful when dominant cultures appropriate from minority cultures. And she had an example of a Buddhist student that came to her and was talking about like the Buddhistics restaurant in yeah. Dunedin. I don't know if you guys have seen. Um, and how it's like a Buddha statue head yeah. and like taken away from, she perceived it taken away from like all other religious connotations and she didn't really like that. So that would be an example of cultural appropriation. But to flip that on its head, what would it look like to respectfully engage with another culture? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really important question. I mean, I, I um, you know, I mean, there's a lot to say about that. I, I think, I mean, I think one, so I have found myself in situations where I was not sure how to act in my travels and research. And I guess maybe the the best thing to do is just to to ask if you're in a, if you're in another place, you know, what's the best way to be respectful in this particular context? Um, but certainly, things like the misuse of religious images and um, can you know feel very harmful to people who's who's who are you know part of a given religion. Um, there's been some examples uh, in South and Southeast Asia recently of attempts to sort of criminalize that behavior. So in Myanmar, for example, there was a, a New Zealand person who had a bar with a Buddha image on it who was put in prison in Myanmar. And oh, wow. um, so there's quite high stakes to this kind of stuff. And I think, yeah, being sensitive to it is 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 key. And um, But it, in terms of hard and fast rules, it would change from context to context. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We were uh, in that situation once. We went to the, oh, yeah. the Buddhist um, church Temple. Buddhist temple, like, yeah, up and around Dunedin. Yeah. I remember everyone was there. I can't remember what they did, but it was a type of bow, and we didn't really know what to do in that situation. But we asked someone, and they said, You can do it, you don't have to. Yeah. It's your choice. Yeah. But yeah, it was a, it was a sticky situation. Well, it felt like a sticky situation at the time, but it was easily solved by. We're just yeah. asking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think one maybe like comparison that I sometimes think about is. You know, if some if you're in some context like in, he, locally, and someone sort of just doesn't really conform to what the expected etiquette is for whatever reason, they don't. You go to shake their hand, and they don't shake it, or whatever it is. It just feels a bit off and icky, it's a, and yeah, <laughs> a little bit awkward. Yeah, so it's, it, and there is a kind of a harm from that, and particularly if you're someone who's you know uh, passionate and a and a and and a you know devotee of a particular religion, to see it misused in some way can feel yeah really harmful. Definitely. Mm. Mm. Um, so you're mainly focused in the laws of um, religion. Has that um, like been used against not people? Has it has it been like manipulated and like loopholes have been found to either gain profit or like to do someone dirty in New Zealand? Oh, in New Zealand, yeah. Uh, I'm not. You can say other countries afterwards. Yeah. But if, there's any, if there's any big standing out, well, there, there definitely is. Yeah. But I don't want us to know New Zealand. Yeah. Well, I'm. I'm not. So, kind of, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm not, I mean, it's not my area of expertise. Yeah. I mean, I will say that, like all places in the world, um, you know, increasingly there is places where issues of religion and issues of state law are are colliding, or where it's kind of hard to figure out how to how to deal with like complicated situations. I mean, there was a, a court case in. New Zealand, I guess it was about three or four years ago, about basically the question was, would could a, a witness for the prosecution, it was a criminal case, could the witness for the prosecution give evidence wearing a full, you know, the, the burqa, the full, you know, face covering? Mm-hmm. Um, a, 
it, and it was the you know the court had to decide it. I mean, is this okay? Is this not okay? I mean, the the person didn't want to do it because to take off the the veil would be you know against her religious convictions. At the same time, um, you know, she's a witness for the prosecution in a case where the person could go to jail, and and the you know the lawyer for the defense was saying, look, we need to be able to see the witness's face. It's disadvantaged to us if we can't see that, and so the the court had to do a workaround where the judge and you know the two lawyers. And this particular witness kind of gave evidence in a private setting. But that kind mm. of thing where, um, you know, if we're trying to protect religious freedom, we're also trying to be non-discriminatory. Um, mm. it, it, like, there's a lot of that that happens in New Zealand and probably more that may happen in the future. Yeah. Is there any mm-hmm. big ones that have happened overseas? Any particular what, ones you've looked at? I feel like at? you have one in mind. Or I don't, don't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's Genesis. like one interesting one I think for New Zealand we were talking about yesterday is you know, who gets to call themselves a religion and, mm. the, you know, the Order of Jedi Knights, of the, yeah. which, which by, I, I think I read somewhere that they have 70 or 90,000 people who signed up or some <laughs> large <laughs> amount of people. Is um, any Jedi's listening? Yeah. That's, uh, Rise up, gang. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if there are Jedi's listening, I understand that you applied for um, charitable status recently <laughs> as a religious organization and were denied. Um, and that and there's a whole, you know, a kind of a decision that was handed down by the by the charities board about that. But should that have happened? Well, th- th- well. I think the interesting contrast is um, pastafarians have been given <laughs> some kind of legal sanction in New Zealand in the sense that they they're allowed to solemnize marriages. So if you're a post- pastafarian minister, a ministroni is <laughs> is the name. Um, they're officially recognised as a as a group that can solemnize marriages. So those kinds of calls have to be made, you know, uh. in in the law all the time. Yeah, I get. Yeah, I've never thought about it in that way. That to like what constitutes religion, it really has to at this point in time. It yeah. seems like you'd have to pass like a lot of laws and a lot of um like legal things to get. I don't know, like what you want to so, say, like how you're saying before about like law karma, like integrating all of these different things. Because I don't know, you just think of like religion is separate to totally. like this different systems yeah. but actually to have it as part of a law or like a system that integrated and there needs to be like regulations and stuff yeah and they, there's a lot of feedback i mean there's a really interesting example so i'm teaching a class at the moment on law and religion there's a really interesting example of scientology in the states where scientology evolved you know from l ron hubbard and his theories and they sort of deliberately uh shaped themselves in the image of a religion to help get, among other things, tax exemption. But also, you know, there's special protections that come from religious status. You're entitled to certain rights and privileges under, you know, the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act or the Human Rights Act that you aren't if you're not classified, as if you're classified as some kind of society or whatever. So exemptions from having to work on a particular holiday or, you know, all the way through to, you know, sort of strong protections for your beliefs. And so there's a lot at stake. And Mm so when there was basically a battle over the middle part of the 19th century where Scientologists were, you know, adopting ministerial kind of garb and calling themselves a church and developing prayer books and actually sincerely, but also, you know, f- with, a, I think, a political calculation, reshaping the, reli- the, the movement the in, the, in the shape of a religion so that they could get the kind of protections from the state that they needed. And, this, and, and at the same time, there was court cases challenging this. So it's very interesting. And the, there's feedback loops like this that happen, you know, lots of places and with lots of different, <laughs> lots yeah. of different things. I just had a thought, and I don't mean to offend anyone listening, um, obviously, but um, 
the if you, if someone came to I don't know where, where do you go to get um, like a religion created? Is that uh, well, you could go. I mean, a lot of the places that people go to get religions recognized are um, it, they want to be recognized as a charitable trust. So, uh, charities board in New Zealand. Because yeah. if you if there was say there was one of the um, religions was never a thing. Hmm. Not not picking out anyone in particular, but if it was never existed, and they came up with it now and they brought it to the thing, would it? We wouldn't know if it would actually be passed if the Jedi one's oh. not being passed. Would the well, they, they they applied certain tests to that. So there's certain sort of legal definitions of religion that they chose as authoritative. I think one from the UK and some others. And one of those things is sort of like sincerity of intent and various. I think it was the sincerity test that they sort of right. failed on. Uh, but how you measure sincerity is a complicated question. And so yeah, so like you can you can see the we're sort of scraping at this <laughs> this big this pit of interesting thing. things that yeah. I I love talking about and reading about. Ooh. It's so right. much behind it. Yeah, I think. And and there is a class being taught next semester: religion, law, and politics. Uh, if you're interested in some of these issues, look out for it. Was it religion, law, and politics? <laughs> it's called religion, law, and politics. Yeah, okay. it's actually taught by a, a, another colleague of ours, um, Tom White, who. Is excellent. Is that first year or? That is, yeah, it's a 200 and 300 level class, but oh, you're welcome awesome. to take it as a first year. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you're listening to this conversation, you're like, oh my God, that sounds like it's up my alley. Definitely check that out. Check out. Other than that, Are we gonna wrap up? I think that's us, yeah. It's our yeah. last episode. Oh man, thank you so much. No, for thank we need like party poppers awesome. or something, like a little like woo yeah. celebration. Yeah, thanks for bringing the pinata as well. Find <laughs> <laughs> the cake. Yeah, that was. The viewers really nice. can't see it, but I mean, <laughs> it's massive pinata. Yeah. Um, yeah. Other than that, thank you so much. Um, we're going to be back next semester doing another yeah, season. Yeah, season two. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued like support throughout this season. It's been awesome. It's been cool to actually like ask for questions and have questions come in and have people come up to both of us and be like, oh my God, I listened to this. Like, I thought this about that. I'm like, whoa. But- Especially to see it grow. We started this idea and we didn't expect it to take off. And <laughs> we expect no one to actually like the idea. And now we've had Radio 1 help us out. The uni have come to us. and. It's, it's seriously awesome. Yes, it's thank awesome. you. Yeah, we and yeah, thank you, Ben, for we joining be us here for our finale. Exactly. And we wouldn't be here without you, so thank you. Guys. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.